Hey ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 19 of our podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you're new here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order. We've had such a great time researching it and working on it, and especially bringing it to you guys. In the last chapter, we went back to 1526, to the court of Henry VIII. Now we're returning to 1565 and joining Constance at Cecilia's court. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jessie. Chapter 19, Bedford House, in which Constance considers matters of money, medicine, and marriage. Constance fluffed the ermine that covered the princess's arms. She twirled it and mussed it. I am queen of the beasts. Rar, Cecilia growled merrily. What a hand you have for brushing, English one. She beamed at Constance. Anna Yaron's daughter crossed into the princess's dressing room, curtsying low, so low that her forehead touched the floor. She mumbled something. Cecilia whirled around, pointing her toe as it lofted from the ground. Whose dainty foot can bend as well as mine? Anna stood and followed the princess, placing herself before her, curtsied deeply again, face to the floor, pleading in Swedish. These ladies, cooed Cecilia, what cares they have? Can you not see Anna's wrinkled little brow? She shall get furrows. Her face shall be a planted field. Anna petted Cecilia's hand, crooning in Swedish. Anna had been homesick and must be asking to return, Constance thought. Cecilia lifted her hand from the girls and plucked a pearl from her hair. The single orb landed in Anna's palm. I have given Anna something, and not my Constance, who is as dear to me as one of my own ladies. Cecilia broke into Swedish, and Anna disappeared, reappearing with a book. The princess took the book and bestowed it on Constance. Each of my ladies has a copy of this tome. Consult it in your time of need, my love. It contains advice essential to a woman turned to the point marked by the ribbon. The title, De Matera Medica, a beautifully engraved drawing of a plant on the first page, the text all in Latin, a wise tome, no doubt, but still, Constance thought it was odd to give round copies of a medical book. Most mistresses preferred to hand out Bibles or prayer books. Yet she dutifully turned to the marker and began to read. Cecilia whirled away. Did you not note Dudley's desire to dance La Volta with me? How the Queen held him back. She has no liberality. She squeezes. He wishes to wriggle away. I will bestow on him a moment of respite. Such is my nature, Mistress Constance. You will come to my aid, for such is your nature. Gee, Sue, Cecilia's prattle faded. Constance could not believe the words she read. The prevention of pregnancy? Cotton soaked in vinegar that a woman was to place inside herself? She shivered. That was beyond belief. The next suggestion, inserting stones or small pieces of wood, sacre bleu, her aunt would die on the spot to see such a book. Constance closed the outrage, finding Cecilia still talking. Oh, teach me la volta, Cecilia lifted her skirts. Is this footwork correct? 
Unsurprisingly, the princess was accomplished at the dance. The little jumps were precise and the rhythm natural. Constance joined in, taking the man's part. The princess danced vigorously. And, without music to time the beat, the velocity of the steps increased. Constance feared they would both break their heads when the moment came for the final leap. Bracing herself in a lunge, she readied herself for the princess to fly. Stopping mid-step, Cecilia cried, Why tarry at the door? Dr. Olaf, come in! Into the orbit of your son! The Swedish chaplain reached his hand behind the door and brought out a small counting table. With a cursory bow, he set it down in front of Cecilia and began making rapid movements with the counters, commenting in a quiet stream of Swedish. It was enough to give pause until Cecilia commanded in English, Dance! You must dance, sir! Your back will ache from bending so! He bowed, but continued. As one side of the table became loaded with counters, Constance's smile quivered. Cecilia must have debt, yet what noble did not? Give up this dull occupation! The clink, clink, clink is lulling me into a slumber, the princess demanded. Dr. Olaf held up a single counter that he placed opposite a great pile. Looking up at Cecilia, he spoke in Swedish again, his mouth a chapped crinkle on the top of his pointy grey beard. Do you not mark me, doctor? How dare you be so rude to sweet Constance? Speak so we may all understand. Constance did not want to command such notice. She curtsied, trying to look very small against the wall. Dr. Olaf's discomfort endeared him to her. He had no desire to embarrass, yet he would make his point. Your grace, he said slowly, meat maketh men to laugh, and wine maketh them merry, but on to money are all things obedient. Ecclesiastes 10.19 Such wisdom comes from the word of God. Abraham waited patiently and obtained the promise. Hebrews 6.15 Doctor, you must partner me. We will vault her to the heavens, or I am not a true Vasa. The princess grabbed Olaf's hand called for her musicians, and sent servants off with orders to round up the rest of her retinue. No one was to miss the dancing lesson. The furniture was cast aside. Half a dozen musicians struck up their instruments in the center of the room, and Cecilia's household began to leap and twirl in one frenetic mass. Constance found herself next to Dorodai, who said breathlessly, What but on this hurly-burly? The princess casts off matters of consequence this way. "'Tis so, Dorodai. Who riled her humour? The chaplain with the counting table came. "'Oh, that would do it. The princess is in a painful pinch.' Constance had not received pay, assuming that it would eventually come. It was disturbing to think of a royal as any other someone looking for ready money. "'The princess is of such an open nature. Surely she is not careless with her debts.' If she must choose between our pay and Bacchanalia, Bacchanalia it will be. Dorodai, you accuse her of such fecklessness. The other ladies and I are short of ready money. We think to sell some of our jewels. Perhaps you might be our agent. I? I have no connections. To Mistress Aloof St. John, she will talk to you. Of late she has been free. The dressmaker has been coming and going, and almost every day she has new finery. Constance knew the reason for Thomason's sudden dedication to her appearance, love for the Earl of Rutland. What would you have me do? 
entice her into purchasing some items. Surely you do not want to part with your wardrobe, Dorodai. The princess's brother can make her alone. Pah, King Eric's milkmaid whore is pregnant. He gives her everything, thinks of no one but the clay-brained cow. He will not be sending money to his sister, even though he sent her here to do his work, to press his suit with your queen. But he no doubt forgets. His mind is washed in peasant love juice. Peace, poor bird. I understand. You are mistreated, and now you must sell your things. Very well. I will go to Thomason. Zigreed swept by and grabbed Constance's hand. On your legs, to the dance. Why the long, soft face? Constance took up La Volta, presenting false joy. Spending but a few minutes with Thomason resulted in Constance having to pace the garden for a full twenty times before she was calm. That Mistress St. John filled her with unkind thoughts. Constance despised the supercilious way Thomason listened to her request on behalf of the Swedish ladies, then snapped up Rutland's poem, handing Constance a response and shooing her out. Rutland might find Thomason perfection, but to her, Mistress St. John was just another mooncalf member of Bedford House. Perhaps an extra turn around the grounds before she sought Rutland would cool her humor. She heard Wynne panting to keep up. Pushing Thomason from her mind, her thoughts returned to her poet, Wyatt, dead. Dear sister, dead also. Yet there was an obvious third party, the woman Wyatt wove his words for. She might live. Certainly she would want to talk about the man who wooed her with such arresting metaphors. An old woman now, she would preen to recall the flattering descriptions. Constance was curious about this unknown player, even beyond knowledge of the relic, but the relic was the first thing in her mind. The Earl of Rutland was away, the servant told her. Constance imagined Oxford or the pox-faced Bacon gloating over the discovery of their fellow's love life, if she left the letter. She would return another time. The servant continued, Mistress Constance, do not depart. Lady Mildred awaits you. Constance was unprepared. Wynne fluffed Constance's hair and took a little spit on her thumb and smoothed her dark eyebrows. Readying her posture, Constance followed the man with conscious strides. Lady Mildred was arranged, well-seated, her young daughter on her knee, her baby son in her arms, the light from the window falling just so on the parchment before her. Mildred bestowed a kiss on her daughter's forehead and sent her and her little brother off with the nurse. Constance's nerves set in at that moment. What excuse could she give for being here at Cecil House? Madam, the princess sent me here on an errand, not an errand of any real import. It is an errand that lacks import. Forgive me, madam. Tis no matter, Mildred assented as a gruffling came from her right. There Constance saw Lady Anne Bacon reading in the corner. Constance regained her composure. Lady Mildred, you are fortunate to have the companionship of your sister. It is easier for some than others to find felicity, Lady Anne Bacon opined. Constance has found it, Lady Mildred smiled. Mistress Constance, your friend Lady Elizabeth Clinton has been here on your behalf. Are you pleased to engage young Herbert? A passing talk at a dance, and now this. How things moved around her. The court was an ocean, and she was no ship. She was more like a shiny object, continually picked up, then cast back in again. I have great happiness in marriage myself, Mistress Stoner. A person with a fine mind, an upstanding nature, and at least a little joy, can make a desirable partner for life. 
Do you think Herbert such a man? Mildred asked. I have never spoken to him with words, offered Constance evasively. When God and your elders choose, love should come in a glance, Lady Anne said. Constance thought of Charles Paget. It was true. You are earnest, Mildred observed. You would prosper greatly by a connection with Pembroke's son. You must marry soon. You honour me with your interest, madam. Mistress Constance, I see little happiness in your face. Do you fear your aunt will stand in the way? That can be dealt with. Or is there another? Do not listen to those who will try to bend you to believe that love will fade. It may, but it may not. It may drive you to the end of sense. If such is the case, you must find a course of study to douse your ardour. It is the best way to calm the passion. That is wise, madam. I will tell you a secret, Mistress Constance. When my lord is away, I study Latin and mathematics. Cognition in pursuit of comprehension kills desire. My girl, is there another? Constance answered with a necessary lie. No, Lady Mildred, there is not, but I am sure I will use your words to aid me in the future. Lady Mildred was so loquacious. Did she want something? Did the princess give you the evil book she bestows on all her women? Lady Anne Bacon cut in. Madam, she did. I tell true. I, I was without words. Never had I seen such a thing. Although Constance wondered how Anne Bacon knew about the strange gift. Lady Mildred's face was lit with silent chuckles, but her sister frowned. We know where one such as the Vasa shall spend her eternity. Constance, trust your maidenhead to mathematics, Lady Mildred advised. I believe you to be right, my lady, but it is not a gentleman who tempts me. It is the court. I wish to remain at court. Are not the court ladies married? asked Anne Bacon. Or is the Vasser princess's household so appealing that you would forego marriage for it? I have learned much. Nothing of virtue, judged Anne Bacon. Yet... It is my great wish to return to the Queen's service before I wed. But the princess, tell us of her, Mildred said. What are her diversions? Who are her regular guests, her companions? A merchant appeared in the doorway. Mildred gestured him away. Constance was grateful to drop the subject of marriage. The visitors to Bedford House are many, as you well know, madam. The princess cannot be without company. There are Swedish followers... And those of the princess's husband, the Margrave of Baden-Baden? I, I do not know all the names. I beg pardon. Sir Robert Dudley comes, and Captain Hawkins, and some of his men, the Marquis of Northampton, and Signor Guzman, and his people. Has a master de Lenoy been there? Anne Bacon inquired. The ladies like it when he attends. Uh, he tells fortunes and, and reads the cards, but it has been days since his last visit. Lady Mildred and her sister shared a look, and the subject was abandoned as abruptly as it had been introduced. Now, it has come to my attention that the princess has a few debts, Mildred said. Constance knew it was more expedient to be truthful. Evasion would only irritate. Yes, madam, some of the princess's debt is purely domestic. She cannot pay her household. For my own part, madam, I must tell true, I have had no wages. Lady Mildred's face was impossible to read. Was she angry? Sad? Vexed? Constance threw a supportive little half-smile, but the woman had arrived at some sort of decision. 
The princess makes you suffer. I will give something for each of you. Say it is a gift from me for the joy of having the Swedish ladies close by. Mildred handed her a small purse of coins. If you tell the princess, she will claim anything I send, so keep it to yourselves. You may go, Mistress Constance. Constance did not have time to wonder if she would find Rutland, as he was laying in wait for her. He hustled her down to the kitchen, explaining that Oxford would bind her hands and feet and make her listen to his scribblings for hours if he caught sight of her. Well, I do have fine taste in poetry. I'm surprised Oxford could notice. I'm not a peeress. You did not treat him with sufficient gravitas, leaving before he could give his brilliance utterance. I see. I must take him in profound earnestness, as he takes himself. The burden of one of his birth. The kitchen staff froze as they spied the earl. Continue, said Rutland. Set to. I would not stop such a worthy group of servants from completing their tasks. The kitchen hummed again. Barnaby, bring me a duck leg, and one for this lady. Thank you, my lord, Constance said. Call me Rutland. Am I such a gentleman? You will have a joust with me, and I will call you Rutland. You would be a fine addition to our band. It needs some beauty to counter young Bacon. You have lost your kindness, my lord. We must send out a search. Barnaby appeared with the duck legs, and Constance bit hers. The skin was burnt and crispy. Fresh from the fire, Rutland ate appreciatively. Did you read the Pyramus and Thisbe? I shed mulberry tears. Poor witness lion to cause their deaths. The lion? No, they were addled with passion. When he falls on his sword as a true man, my heart swells. But when poor Thisbe finds him there, my heart broke. I cried all morning. As you should. You have a great soul. I think the tragical history of Romeus and Juliet will be your next outing. What friend are you, my lord, who likes me to sit alone in tears? He laughed and lowered his mouth close to her ear. What did my dear love write? I did not read it. You were not curious. What ails you? You are not a woman. We will indeed have a joust, and I will call you Connor. Barnaby passed Constance a napkin. After cleaning her hands, she extracted the note. Rutland smelled the paper and opened it. His face fell with a look at the length. My love had very little time to write, I see. Why did you rush her? You must be as patient as a statue. Constance almost exclaimed, but she reined in. My lord, have I no other occupation than to wait for your love to find description of her feelings for you? Now it is you who forgets your kindness. I would like a better letter. Encourage her. Offer suggestions. In the way you have guided me, although I have prepared this poem myself, you will approve. It shows the great force of my love. Is it by Wyatt? Indeed, are we not settled on that score? Sir, do you know whom he did love so, who captured his heart so powerfully? Constance prayed it was someone alive, someone she could find. They say it was Queen Anne Boleyn herself. Constance should have known the heretic. It was so disappointing. Maybe Anne Boleyn bewitched Wyatt as well as Henry Tudor. Heaven and hell, could it be that this Boleyn had charm? How could this fit together? If the man loved such a lady, one who had spurred the destruction of the old faith, who drove the king to destroy and loot, could he still be a person who would preserve the relic? Never will I cast the relic into the ocean or burn it on a pyre. I will not be rid of it. I say this again and again. Wyatt had written... Rutland said, Does the name of Queen Anne disappoint Mistress Constance? The lady is not legend enough to be the muse of our poet. Constance covered. 
I did not expect one on whom the sun shone so brightly. The servants began clattering the plate and arranging for dinner. Would you stay? Rutland asked. Not to watch you and my lord Oxford try to pitch the food into each other's mouths. Good day, sir. At Bedford House, Constance searched out Doradai, impatient to tell her that Mildred Cecil had sent money. Together they distributed the coins between the Swedish ladies, who were spared, for the moment anyway, from selling their jewels. Amid another of Cecilia's La Volta lessons, her aunt's postboy Peter arrived from Stoner House, looking as if he had run the thirty miles from Oxfordshire. He presented Constance with a letter from her aunt. Constance opened it, and out fell a letter addressed to the Countess of Lennox. Hiding it away in her bodice, Constance heard her stomach squeal. She would like to squeal herself. The moment was coming when the Bishop Guzman de Silva would summon her again. Constance is just dreading going back to the Tower of London. I mean, it's a dangerous enterprise, but she's a dutiful young person, <laughs> and she will go when she is called to. Being dutiful is something we in the West do not consider a virtue anymore. Now we actually consider it inauthentic to do something that you yourself do not want to do in order to please someone else. But in 16th century England, it was completely the opposite. And I think that's really important for us to understand when we think about, about the people of this time, because fulfilling a duty showed a strength of character. And that was something Gage and I talked about a lot in terms of Constance. Constance is driven by duty, but that doesn't mean she isn't confident. No, she would have valued in herself that she could fulfill a duty that she felt was difficult. To think about it the other way is it's presentism. Mm -hmm. Duty is not a weakness. It's a self-sacrificing strength. And often in historical fiction, there's a protagonist who stands up to an unjust person of a higher status, and that unjust person listens and changes. <laughs> As if. Right? <laughs> and wants to be more egalitarian. But people in this period believed that they had the right to their life station. God ordained it, and it was called the Great Chain of Being. The Great Chain of Being was a set of beliefs that said everything here on earth, everything, well, also in, in heaven, right, not just on earth, was the way it was because it was ordained by God. And it was heresy or against God to try to change this great chain of being. So at the very top of the chain is God. That's where he put himself. And then, of course, the angels and the company of heaven. And then humans. Humans as a group were the next. And then animals, and then plants, and finally rocks, water, air, things like that. You can imagine within humans, there's another set of hierarchies that begins with the clergy and the pope at the top. And then there's the state. And this state, there's kings, and then maybe queens, depending on the country you live in. Then nobles, merchants, and the lowest were peasants. And then even within families, there are hierarchies. And that's pretty straightforward. The father, then the mother, then the son, then the daughters, and finally servants. In this time period, people accepted this great chain of being completely. And I think in a way that we can't imagine today. 
We study the history of religion, how beliefs change over time. We're aware of so many different types of religions and so many different ways of viewing the world. So the weight of this one idea can't possibly have the certainty, or we can't even understand the certainty that it had for hundreds of years in Europe. I don't think there's a shared idea in a lot of Western countries that one way of structuring the society is the way that is the is the accepted and absolute way that it has to be. We certainly don't we don't we don't have that idea anymore. That's true. And if you're not dutiful in this time period, you are against the great chain of being. You're going against God's will and you will be punished by God and ostracized by your fellows. There's a strong belief in interdependence, not independence. So if you disrupt the chain, there's an overall negative effect for everyone in the world. For example, if a daughter disobeys her father, God would strike her ill as a punishment. So you can imagine this divine justice reinforces the status quo, although of course, there are always exceptions. There were people who became wealthy or who changed Thomas their Cromwell. Right? Thomas Cromwell. Yes, son of a butcher. But this was a very powerful idea in the mind of the populace. And Constance has competing duties and positions. A 16th century intersectionality. She knows she has to follow the will of the church. But yet she also has to follow the will of the queen. She has to follow the will of her family. But she also has to be a good and dutiful lady-in-waiting to her mistress, the Princess Cecilia. She's conflicted and she's trying to keep all these balls in the air. And then the woman that she's serving, the Princess Cecilia, who she has to admire, is a wanton. <laughs> and Cecilia gives Constance this book that shocks Constance. But she can't possibly upset her mistress by objecting to it out loud or tossing it back in Cecilia's face. It's just unthinkable. She has to smile and be gracious, even though she's disturbed by this copy of De Materia Medica. This book began its long influence in about 50 to 70 CE, when it was written by a Greek physician working in the Roman army. It was the most comprehensive pharmacopoeia of medicinal plants and medicines available until the Renaissance. It was a medical bestseller for 1,500 years. That's pretty impressive. And in the Renaissance, the information in it was added to, not refuted. So in one of the earlier episodes of the podcast, we talked about some of the absurd ideas about contraception that circulated in the medieval and Tudor periods, such as hanging bull testicles around your neck or wearing a goat womb around your waist or weasel testicles slung on your thighs. <laughs> I think those things might have worked because animal testicles and goat wombs were just a real mood killer. It's and so <laughs> no one. It's true. My God, can you imagine what it must have felt like? to be walking around with weasel testicles on your thighs. There was also knowledge about more effective methods of contraception that had been practiced for thousands of years and you know, were still circulating and, and in remedies and, and known to people at this time as well. There were herbs that acted as oral contraception and there were also barrier methods like those in De Materia Medica. And some of those sound pretty risky, but 
much more effective than animal parts. In the ancient world, there was less controversy about birth control. There was a huge trade in very effective oral contraception, which was called silphium, and that was a kind of giant fennel. This plant and its birth control properties were thought to have been a gift from Apollo, not at all something to be avoided, and this plant was extremely hard to cultivate, but it was so popular and bought and sold so rapidly that it actually went extinct. Because life beginning at conception, it wasn't an idea in the ancient world, or honestly, the early modern world for that matter. There was a lot of mystery about how a baby was formed. They just didn't have the kind of knowledge that we have. And these plant-based methods, which were called menstruation regulators, weren't illegal in the English-speaking world until the 19th century. In 1869, the Catholic Church ruled that life begins at conception, that that is when the moment, that's the moment of ensoulment, when the soul enters the body. And thus any kind of menstruation regulators or things that bring on menstruation when somebody's in the early stages of pregnancy were sinful. Previous to that decision, the most popular idea was the one suggested in Genesis, that life began at birth. And that was commonly accepted. St. Thomas Aquinas argued that souls were created by God and not by man. So the soul was not given to an infant before it drew its first breath. In the 16th century in England, adultery and fornication were actually far more grievous sins than bringing on a period. And that's not to say that a young gentlewoman like Constance wouldn't be shocked by the advice in Cecilia's book. And then is now, in many Western countries, we have strong prohibitions about talking openly about birth control, even though it's legal. Because there's a belief that discussing birth control will encourage people to have more sex. Especially young persons. <laughs> <laughs> and that was certainly the case in the Tudor time as well. These contraception remedies were widely known, but not openly encouraged. And there was gossip about Cecilia giving out this kind of advice during her London stay. But she was really way too high up to get into any trouble about it. I mean, she was a princess, she was royal, and also she was foreign. <laughs> <laughs> so in this case, the great chain of being protected her. It's funny that Swedish Cecilia is accused of being too open about sex. <laughs> it's a stereotype we still have about the Swedes. So if you're out there in Sweden listening, Thanks we, for your openness. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, you know, I, it's, it's always funny to talk about stereotypes because you don't want to say a stereotype is based on fact. But in this case, I think the Swedes are much more open about sex than we are. And they have been for a long time. So, But in this chapter, Cecilia gives Constance this shocking book. But she also wants Constance to teach her La Volta. It's a dance that Constance would have known because Elizabeth loved to dance it but it also caused kind of an uproar in England for being scandalous. And continuing with our national stereotypes, <laughs> yeah. La Volta was imported from Italy, so it was much too sensual. <laughs> so it was already suspect. And there's a lot of contact between couples in La Volta because the man lifts the woman up with his hands around her waist as she springs off the ground and kicks her feet. <laughs> and you can see it on YouTube, and it actually looks pretty fun. And we'll post some links to Elizabethan dancing on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page so listeners can check it out. So the visual of, his, of a gentleman with his hands on a lady's waist 
And I think also the athleticism needed for the woman's part and all the jumping and fun, it really set the more puritanical of the English off. But that didn't stop Queen Elizabeth from dancing La Volta at court or teaching it to her ladies, and she loved to dance it with Robert Dudley. There's actually a lovely portrait of uh, Queen Elizabeth and Dudley doing La Volta, which was painted in, um, I think, 1580. She has tiny little feet that are kicking kicking out. (laughs) And we'll also post that on our Facebook page because it's a lovely picture. But Cecilia wants to learn this dance so she can best the queen at her own moves and maybe even to muscle in on Robert Dudley's attention because he does have that nice calf that she admires so much. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that Elizabeth might have liked La Volta because it infuriated the kind of puritanical members of her court. And they couldn't do anything about her desire to do this because she was queen. So it was In a the great bit, chain of being. Yes, it was, was a queen. little bit like, ha-ha. I think, I actually think the opposite, because I think she made everyone at court do La Volta, because then it was normalized, and no one would be able to talk about her being indecent. So she taught it to everybody. She was so conscious of her image. That's true. But she also liked to project power. And she liked to push what was acceptable. And it was a way for her to flex. It's true. True. I accept that. But as an unmarried queen, Elizabeth had to walk this razor's edge between being forceful and original, but not creating scandal. Henry VIII could marry six times, execute two wives, break with the Pope, have innumerable mistresses, and be nicknamed Old Copper Nose because he debased the currency so badly to enrich himself, but he was still deemed the defender of the faith and a great king whose time was bemoaned by the entire population when he died. It's crazy. It's just an intense double standard. Elizabeth had to watch herself, which is why she was also adept at the more docile Pavan. The Pavan is a very slow dance. So actually, somebody like me could do the Pavan. Gage, on the other hand, you, you're you a vaulter. Definitely a vaulter. The Pavan is more like a procession. It's got no jumping. Nobody has their hands on anybody's waist. The only contact is holding hands. I mean, it would be almost impossible to get out of breath doing the Pavan. Cecilia would have also known how to do the Pavan, but I'm sure it bored her. And she doesn't seem to have cared that much about her reputation with the more puritanical (laughs) element. So she was happy to La Volta. Although the word Puritan is actually just beginning to be used in the 1560s. So they probably would not have used it in 1565. And these Puritans, they were not the Mayflower pilgrims who based laws on the Old Testament dressed in all black and hated the theater. They were <laughs> just <What> a bummer. <laughs> they were more reformers within the Church of England. The Puritan movement actually grew out of the Reformation. It grew out of the formation of the Anglican Church. As we've said, Henry was actually religiously pretty conservative, even though he broke from the Pope. But he did that more for power than really for refuting Catholicism. And many people in England believed that the Anglican Church, the Church of England, was just too similar to the Catholic Church. And they should make their religion more Protestant, more biblically based. And that meant getting rid of ceremonies and vestments and sometimes liturgy. At this point in time, 1565, Puritanism is not a coherent movement. 
Some people simply wanted reform within the church and others wanted to break off and create something new. It, and it's difficult to know what someone like Mildred Cecil in our story, what a person like her really thought would happen with Puritanism. Even though she was a Protestant and interested in those ideas. And we see, we see her in this chapter of Time's Riddle with her sister Anne Bacon, who's so disapproving about um, Cecilia in this chapter. But Mildred also shared ideas with her husband, Sir William Cecil. And William Cecil felt that any really zealous religious reformers, Protestant or Catholic, were a threat to Elizabeth because they were by definition intolerant of each other. Cecil and Elizabeth saw the value of religious tolerance because religious wars for all of history <laughs> and continuing and continuing were extremely destructive are extremely destructive they are extremely destructive and expensive and and they were pragmatic i think mildred cecil shared that kind of pragmatism with her husband and the queen but it's possible her sister anne bacon who we also see in this chapter was definitely more of what she would have thought of herself more as a Puritan, which meant that she thought the Church of England should be purified of its Catholic leanings. At this point, Puritanism is a little mild. I mean, I don't think that someone like Anne Bacon would have imagined that this Puritan movement would grow and become so militant and so anti-monarchy that it would bring about a civil war in England and the beheading of a king. No, the Puritans were about the Bible. And as a, as a group, they placed a strong emphasis on literacy and education so that everyone could read the Bible themselves and understand the word of God themselves. Which is something actually Queen Elizabeth's mother, Anne Boleyn, would have approved. We have the word puritanical now, which is deemed overly strict in matters of religion and morals. But early on, that's not so much the case. They drink, they celebrate, they dance. They don't believe in drunkenness, but that seems pretty reasonable. <laughs> yeah, Mildred and her sister Anne were extremely well educated. They had humanist educations. Their father was quite forward thinking because he chose to educate all the sisters in their family, along with the men. And they had incredible educations, they were both linguists they were they had libraries they were really quite remarkable women both of them Mildred was Cecil's second wife and while there is an historical idea that she was too serious that she was a downer there's really not that much to support that he certainly wrote that they lived together very happily for many years and she was very involved in their household project of forwarding themselves at court. She wrote letters to help settling the Treaty of Edinburgh. She wrote to the Scottish nobles. She interceded with people who were trying to petition Cecil, either letting them through or not letting them through. They were their own fiefdom at court, and she was absolutely a full participant. And in our story, we use the historical fact that Elizabeth I actually gave Mildred this job of meeting Cecilia when she arrived from Sweden in, in England and setting up Cecilia's lodging 
so she would be comfortable. Mildred was never a lady-in-waiting, but she, without her husband, did many tasks for the queen. Yes, and Mildred was in charge of these very lucrative wardships that we spoke about in one of the earlier episodes. So when she's in historical fiction, when she's portrayed at all... Which is seldom. Yeah, no. She's usually just walking around the house. (laughs) (laughs) But she was part of everything. It's just not true. It's not accurate. Maybe it's another stereotype. Yes. That Cecil's wife wouldn't have been involved in his, in, his, uh, in his work. In this chapter of Time's Riddle, Constance is so nervous being interrogated by Mildred and Lady Anne Bacon. And they're very high up, and they hold beliefs that she would think of as heretical. But she has to bite her tongue. She can't tell these important sisters that if they don't follow the great chain of being as she sees it, they'll be punished. She tries to follow what she believes to be the path that God wants for her. And although she's nervous about going back to the Tower of London, she certainly can't tell somebody like Guzman de Silva, a bishop, that she's not going to do this duty that he's set her. But we'll have to wait and see in further chapters when she's called on to do that again. In the next episode, Constance will be faced with a new and terrifying (laughs) duty, being scrutinized by her husband-to-be's family, the Pagets. Oh, that's maybe the hardest duty of all. <laughs> and again, one that she would never dare shirk from because of the great chain of being. So leave us a comment on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page. And if you have any questions about anything we have talked about today, anything you're curious about, send the questions our way on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. And please consider supporting us on Podbean. Go to the support page and you'll see some of the fun perks we have. We really appreciate it. All our gratitude for listening. And remember to listen in next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-Minded Talk.